Jesus was stripped naked so we could be robed in his righteousness. He died a disgusting, filthy death with body fluids and garbage and died like a defiled man so we could be washed clean in the blood of the lamb. He was crucified outside of the city so we could be adopted in. This is where our theology actually is at its best, not at diagnosing the problem, but at responding to it. So when I, when I talk about shame, I tell people, I'm talking about the active righteousness of Christ, not just his crucifixion. The active righteousness of Christ, which is actually one of our distinctives, mm-hmm. is he died so our sins would be forgiven. He fulfilled the law so we could be declared righteous in double imputation. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we are on a season four, the Reformed Church episode. We have Dr. Justin Holcomb on, and we're going to be talking about counseling. And so we will jump into this conversation here in a moment. As always, some reminders on our show notes. If you go to our show notes, you'll see how to how to get in touch with Peter and myself, whether it's through the podcast. Uh, you could go to uh, our email, which is guiltgracepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at guiltgracepod. Same handle for Instagram. We put up content uh, numerous times a day almost, so you can really stay in touch with us on there and what's coming up, the pipeline with um upcoming seasons and episodes and books and all that good stuff. Uh, We also have information on how you can become a bridge builder. So our show is going to be keep moving forward uh, because we have some funding coming our way and from people like you, our listeners and uh, sponsors we also have. So in the middle of this episode, you'll hear some words from our sponsors. We always thank our bridge builders out there. Thank you so much. You'll hit that Patreon link. You'll find out the different levels of giving. And of course, do not let that take away from your giving at your local church. And uh, that's the most important thing is that you guys worship in person as we are called to in scripture at your local church. And uh, so with that said, there is a link in our show notes where you can find the closest reformed and confessional churches near your area. So you click that link, you type in your zip code, and whether it's OPC, PCA, URC, or other churches out there will come up as the closest ones near you. So you can refer people to go to. You can go to yourself if you're not already a member of a church. So uh, yeah, and then also there's information on how to contact Peter directly. He is uh, doing a he is church planting as we speak. So if you or you know somebody in the uh, Santa Ana, uh, California area, which is in the middle of Orange County, uh, go ahead and contact Peter. He can answer your questions about his uh, church. And with, uh, yeah, I'll, I have nothing else to say. So I think we'll let Peter further introduce Dr. Justin Holcomb. Yeah, we're pleased to have Dr. Justin Holcomb, who is a priest, professor, 
an author, written or edited uh, 20 books on abuse, theology, and biblical studies, teaches theology and apologetics at RTS and Gordon-Conwell. Uh, he also serves on the board of GRACE, which is Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments, Health Support, Leaders Collective, and helped co-found Rest with his wife, Lindsay, in 2009. He also co-hosts the White Horse Inn podcast, which most of you may know. We've had Dr. Horton and we've had uh, Adriel Sanchez on before to talk about this, and uh, they're part of this as well. But it's a pleasure having you on, and we're going to be talking about some of the things that you've kind of devoted your life work to, but it's a pleasure to have you on, and, and how's it going? Well, thank you very much, Nick and Peter, for the opportunity. Um, love any initiative with called Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. that just uh, it says everything about what you all care about and uh, highlights priorities. But thank you for letting me uh, be a voice on such an important topic, yeah. and especially um, as we'll dive into, there, there's some gold in the hills of our traditions that are unbelievably helpful for survivors of abuse, and I love uh, talking to people who want to explore that, so thank you very much for the, the opportunity and joy to be here with you guys. Yeah, absolutely, our pleasure. Yeah, there's, this is kind of both prompted by, I mean, A, it's, 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 it's a topic we have to talk about in the church, but also be, I think, some misunderstandings about what counseling is, what it's supposed to do, and, and how the church is involved in counseling. So it's a, it'll be, a, I think, a helpful and, and, uh, and a conversation I think people will benefit from um, overall. So as we start, maybe tell us a bit about yourself, your background, uh, and how you got to your current work. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm 48 and uh, been married to my wife, Lindsay, for 16 or 17 years. Um, neither one of us know exactly how long it's been. So it's not- <laughs> I was about to say, if your wife heard that, I don't know. She, no, she's worse than me. She's like, how long has it been? I'm like, I don't know. Like 2006, <laughs> it's just, it's a math problem, not a love problem. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, dad of uh, two daughters who are 11 and 13. And I am an uh, Episcopal minister, um, or priest. Priest is old English language for presbyter. So uh, some of your some of your listeners start twitching and they're like, wait a second, please, what does that mean? Um, chill out. It's okay. Yep. Uh, this is and uh, but I, I was ordained in 2006 also. So 2006 was a good year in my life. Um, ordained ministry and married my wife. And I've been teaching at various seminaries, RTS, Gordon Conwell, but I've been teaching at RTS since 1999. Um, mm-hmm. I went, I went to RTS Orlando 95 to 97 and then started teaching in Atlanta and then all throughout um, get to teach um, some really cool classes. Uh, in addition to apologetics and theology, uh, right now I team teach uh, theology for counselors with Dr. Michael Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. is a whole nother uh, joy of, you know, especially for what we're going to talk about. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I work for the Diocese of Central Florida. Um, my my title is canon for vocations, which means I help lead o- leadership development, the or- the ordination process for clergy, specifically you know priests, presbyters, um, and we have so it's just we have 80, 82, 83 churches in our diocese, and there's lots of leaders coming from within, and then some coming from without. So we always have a few dozen people in our ordination discernment process at any given time. So my, my congregation is, is, are those groups who are discerning a call to ordained ministry. And then um, what I'm not doing that, I'm, you know, 
you mentioned a few books. So uh, some books on abuse and biblical studies, theology. Um, so I always have a book or two a project in the works in uh, the authoring or editing. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've, yeah we'll, we've, had a, we've had a lot of RTS we have. Uh, faculty on and, we, and we've gone through that covenant theology book that um, we did all our season three on. So we love RTS. Yeah. We do. I, I was grateful. I, I loved my time there and and I, I like uh, what they're doing. And I know there's different campuses, but the uh-huh. uh, the, the counseling program at RTS Orlando is just spectacular. I've heard <laughs> I've heard really good things. Yeah. Being able to be a part of that and learn from the faculty there. there there's I mean, there's numerous faculty, but uh, Dr. Elizabeth Pinnock is a gift. She's actually uh, an Episcopalian in our diocese. Uh-huh. But mm. as a professor there, and she specializes in numerous things, but trauma is one of them. And um, to you know, the way they blend theology and counseling and best practices is, is spectacular. It's faithful. Yeah. It's pastorally wise. It is um, therapeutically on point. So yeah. it's it's a joy to be a part of something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and we'll we'll dive we'll dive into some of this stuff too. Um, so you you specialized in counseling abuse victims over the past 20 or so years, especially with Grace Network. And so what what got you first into this line of work? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I do pastoral care and counseling, which is yeah. different from therapeutic. That's clear. Up, I want to be clear up front. While I teach theology for counselors, um, I don't do the licensed counseling. So that's, okay. we can talk about the differences there. Yeah. Uh, but but I, yeah, I, I've been on the board for Grace uh, for 12 or 13 years, and that's been promoting, that's how do you prevent, recognize, and respond to abuse? Not just sexual abuse, intimate partner abuse, elder abuse, different types of, you know, child abuse, this non-sexual child abuse. And so thinking through who are, who are vulnerable people and how can the church respond well? I mean, that's hence the title, Godly Response to Abuse is it begs the question in the sense of what is a godly response yeah. but I, I got into this because of my wife when we were dating uh, so we got married in 2003 so we were, met each other in 2004 or five um, she was a case manager at a domestic abuse shelter it was called she shelter for help and emergency in charlottesville virginia so we'd go out to dinner i would uh you know, we talk about, you know, my class I'm teaching at RTS DC, and she would talk about her day and she would tell me stories about uh, a woman who had come back to the house for the fifth time. And I'm just, I was just asking questions like, what do you mean the fifth time? She's well, the average woman who leaves an abusive relationship leaves and goes back to the abuser an average of seven to 12 times. So the learning, the learning process is starting all of a sudden. She said, yeah. did they teach you this stuff in seminary? Like expecting, I mean, she, she converted at 19. So she doesn't, she didn't grow up in church culture and, yeah. and that, I mean, she went to church sometimes as a kid, but so no, this is, we had one class. It was a really good class on like intro to pastoral counseling, but no, they, I don't know how to respond on some of these things. Hmm. And, and then we got married and and she became a uh, case manager for a sexual assault crisis center. So our entire relationship, I've been 
been uh, dating or married to a survivor advocate. And, and her role in both of those positions was to work specifically with the person and say, okay, what, what's needed? Does this person need medical care, legal care, spiritual, emotional, therapeutic, vocational? And then she would work with the counselor. So she was part of the team to care and advocate for the survivor of abuse. That that was the a big, big way. We we started the first book we wrote called Rid of My Disgrace. Yeah. Um, help hope and healing for sexual assault victims. That, that came uh not a lot of people know the story, and I love this story. My wife was doing, uh, she was visiting as a sur- sexual abuse survivor advocate. She was going to the women's federal prison in Virginia, hmm. and she was pregnant with our first child. And so she's pregnant. Her hands were swollen, so she took off her wedding ring because it would have gotten stuck there. Mm-hmm. And and there are these 20 women, and they just started talking and said, hey, you're, you know, we noticed you're pregnant. Um you know, tell us about, you know, are, are you married? You don't have a ring on. I said, oh yeah, I'm married. Um, my husband's a pastor. And one of the women said, oh, are you a Christian too? I said, yeah, huh. and we're all Christians here. So why don't we do a Bible study on sexual assault instead of talking about only the practical side of sexual assault? Um, and just a few things, like they said, we're all survivors. Uh, some of us were survivors before we got here. Many of us are survivors while we've been here, both by fellow, you know, people who are in prison, but also some yeah. of the guards and all this, the situation. So my wife came back and said, uh, they want to do a Bible study on sexual abuse. And what, what should we do? So we, the, the, the outline of our book came from a Bible study outline for huh. my wife in a women's federal prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. amazing. That, yeah. We got into it because we got into it because that was one story. And then the other one is we like to say shorthand, uh, pastorally, professionally, and personally, we have experiences. Uh, pastorally, I'm a minister. Yep. People talk about their suffering. So that's one one way. And when you talk about the grace of God, hope, and healing, people go think maybe, maybe that good news relates to the bad news sure. that I've experienced. Maybe. We'll see. Um, professionally, because I'm married to my wife and yeah. professionally is what she does. And and I was teaching in a seminary where I started working on this stuff. And then personally, my own personal experience, everyone assumes when you say personally, it's the woman. Um, and if there's a man and woman, because it's a women's issue is what some yeah. people think unhelpfully. And it was my story of when I was a, you know, a distant, distant family member when I was a, a, a boy and what happened there. So we, we have a few different avenues on how we got into this work. Yeah. Mostly I can shorthand it by saying I'm riding my wife's coattails. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember reading that book. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that's the book you assigned in the class that we had abuse in the church a year and a half ago. Um, and being one of the hardest books to read, to be honest, just because of, of how I mean raw some of this stuff gets. And, and the more and more that we, I think, unfortunately hear about this <clears throat> stuff in the church, um so you, like you hear about these stories in the church and you wonder like how do we how do we respond as members how do we respond as pastors why does this still happen in the church um like what do we think about this in the church so i think it's it's an incredibly it's it's a hard topic to talk about but it's an incredibly i think fruitful if if we, we understand how our theology affects this so that, that uh kind of brings me to this next actually this, this actually is uh, one of Nick's questions i think is, is really really helpful about what we, what we think about, how is this done? Mm. 
Yeah, and just in general, how should counseling broadly and more narrowly with abuse victims be done by a church officer? Uh, love it. Uh, there's two extremes to avoid. One is thinking that the church officer has nothing to bring to the table and assuming, and again, different churches, different denominations have different defaults on this. So I've seen some think, oh, I'm out of my league. I can't do anything here. Um, you know, what good can I be? Well, let me address that. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the most important, one of the most important moments, uh, saying it's the most is perhaps exaggeration, hyperbole. <laughs> One of the most important moments in a survivor's um, hope and healing is the moment of disclosure. When they disclose what happened to someone else that's, that they're trusting to speak into it. The, the first time they're actually telling the story. Many times when someone tells their story, if they have uh, basically, if they're holding some cards, you know, pretend it's poker, five cards, or it could be, depending on your poker game, but five cards. <laughs> And, and they might put one card down to see how that person responds. I'll show you that card. This is what happened. And depending on how they respond, they might trust you more. And then another conversation, you hear more. So there's a slow unfolding. So the most important moment for many people for their healing is the moment of disclosure, because when that church officer or just fellow Christian uh, responds well, that God uses that in a really powerful way. There's lots of research that say that ask survivors of abuse, what's the most helpful behavior that you experience for your healing? And the very top of the list is being listened to and believed. Like, mm -hmm. I love telling other people that because they think, oh, well, I'm not the seminary professor. I'm not the ordained uh, vocational minister who gets paid for this. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a lay elder in a church. I'm, I'm a deacon. I'm, I'm not ordained at all. What I haven't been to seminary. What can I say? And the good news is one of the most powerful things as a fellow brother, sister in Christ you can do is listen and believe them and not ask probing questions that re-traumatizes, but let them tell their story. So to, to the group that says, well, you know, what can I do? I'm, you know, I'm a church officer or I'm, I'm you know, what? And they minimize their role because uh, you have been a recipient of the good news. And as a recipient, you get to also now be an agent of the good news, a mouthpiece for it. And the proclamation of the good news that you say is, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so when you're proclaiming that good news, God likes to use his proclamation of his good news to do a lot of his work for the power of his spirit. So that's one side. The other side is the, the people who think, you know, well, we can't trust all the all those liberal therapeutic victim uh, victim minded people. So we've got to do all the stuff in house and we're going to just go through the catechism a few times. And uh, and yeah. as the shorthand, it, here's two Bible verses. Call me in the morning. Almost mm. like a denial of common grace, as if there might be truth in a non, you know, non-specifically special revelation type of uh, good news. Yeah. And so in, in, in our, my denomination, we can't, we can't meet with someone more than three times about the same topic without referring them to huh. someone. And that's actually helpful. So, yeah. so going back to your question, Nick, you know, how should counseling specifically in, in general, but specifically with survivors of abuse be done by a church officer? Um, not minimizing their role and not overstepping their role and realizing. So I, what's been great for me as a, as a, 
as a minister is working with someone and then referring them to a counselor who's part of the team. There was one woman, she's allowed me to tell her story, but it's just a small part of her story. I met with her and her husband, realized she should probably get someone who's a professional counselor, found a great counselor who I knew and trusted, brought brought that counselor into the mix. That counselor realized she probably needed to get a medical doctor. She hadn't been to the doctor in over 30 years. And so got a doctor on the team. And so as a team, we were all together. And I told, told her, I was like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not handing you off. Um, I, I'm going to keep meeting with you as your pastor about the same topic, but that person's going to meet with you as the counselor. So there was a team of care, not just a handoff. And so I think that was really helpful. So again, you know, I can always, I can say more, but in general, counseling should be avoiding those two extremes and reminding ourselves as church officers of our role, role as shepherd um, or, or, you know, sheep with the bell on or however you want to say it, but we're shepherding um, and, and finding the places where grace, whether common grace or special revelation grace can, can be magnified as much as possible. Yeah. Real quick before Nick asks his next question, I think this is, I think it's to be relevant here because there's this whole kind of movement. I think a helpful movement around like the biblical counseling movement, and this is this is a good thing that we should we should be counseling based on the Bible. Uh, but I think unhelpfully, some people say, like like what you're talking about. Um, well, the Bible kind of it gives us all the answers, and so if we believe that the Bible gives us all the answers, why would it not be completely sufficient for all counseling that we do? Why would we kind of hand them off past the Bible? So like maybe. How would you kind of quickly respond to somebody who's like, well, if the Bible is our truth and it gives us everything we need to know, why is it not sufficient for some of these counseling cases? Yeah, it, just looking at our doctrine of, um, of uh, perspicuity, uh, we're saying is clear in all things it says clearly, especially with regard to salvation. Um, so pers- clarity of scripture, it is clear and it is comprehensive. And I have, a, I mean, my, my doctrine of scripture is <laughs> yeah. just strong. It's um, just strong, yeah. But uh, it's, it's not trying to say everything uh, at the same time. And I do think, I, like, and again, when people use the phrase biblical counseling, our books are in the biblical counseling category because yeah. neither one of us are therapists. So it is, how does the Bible and the Christian tradition relate to this situation? That's what we're doing. What we're not doing is biblical counseling in the sense that no other type of counseling is legit or important. So there is a dismissive way of doing biblical counseling. That's because um, we're not therapists and (laughs) we're researchers. And so we're, we're staying in our lane. Uh, What's been helpful is seeing how um, therapists, counselors who, uh, who, who've read our book have said, ah, this is the kind of stuff we need coming from ministers, coming from advocates for survivors. Yeah. Uh, that way it, it complements them. And they're not saying anything radically different. They, but therapists know how trauma works. They know how trauma memory works to know how trauma affects the body. Um, there's just some basic scientific research that most people wouldn't know. And so I do think um, uh, scripture is, Scripture is our rule and final authority for faith and practice. It is revealing God's disposition toward us and how God redeems his world and his people um, because of the covenant of redemption. Like that's what the Bible is focused on. It's not trying to answer every single question at the same ultimacy. Uh, So how, how does, so, and we'll get to this, but what the things I say to survivors of abuse 
are deeply theological. It's, yep. it's all person and work of Christ. And, and it's very, very, very theological. Um, and uh, so I, I think um, over having an, having an, an, an over um, assessed view of ourselves as ministers isn't helpful. Um, it minimizes where goodness can come from other people and, and other, and that, that doesn't fit with our doctrine of common grace and our doctrine of revelation. Um, yeah. You know, this is where uh, Dr. Horton, Michael Horton uh, has, has, you know, he goes through Genesis. I've heard this in a few lectures and read this a few places, but this is helpful. And I, I give this to my counseling students. Um, God, God creates by divine fiat. Let there be like the word is spoken and boom, there it is. And then in Genesis, it says, and, and, and uh, he, he basically sets up the world. So the world brings forth yep. fruit, providence, and there's things that just, so, so can God, when God heals miraculously, that's divine fiat, boom, miracle. When God heals because of providence, it's still God's agency. It's just a matter of, is it divine fiat or is it providence? Is it miracle or is it providence? And he helpfully messes with the, the simple obvious divide between miracle and providence going back. I think that's helpful when you think about therapeutic care and hope and healing. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, sometimes it's going to be, there's been a few times where I'm, I'm, I'm ministering to someone and something I said, God uses it and they get momentum. Uh, sometimes this, a lay person who has the gift of healing prayer. And what I don't mean is the stereotype of yeah. healing ministries, but like, there are people who, when they pray for other people, God seems to use it and makes some movement in their heart and mind. I just can't happen where it's not talking yeah. to their minister, it's talking to this lay person who prays yeah. for them and something clicks. Could be a conversation with their friend or with a therapist. And so miracle providence, what is God doing? Um, this is all divine agency. It's just in what way is it? So I think that helps problematize the simplistic dismissal of therapy. Um, so that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think biblical counseling is a powerful form of fruit of loving our neighbor, which we can freely do in our response of gratitude towards the gospel. So, um, I, I think that that's something, you know, a very good example of how it is biblical in a response. And this is a little bit of a two part question, the first part you've already kind of answered. So, uh, but what's what's the role of a pastor or church officer and church officer, elder, deacon, what have you in counseling? But more of a new part of that question would be how or when should they refer someone to a professional counselor? Yeah, the 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 role is to be a shepherd and mm. not an accuser not a teacher. Um, so I've, let me give you some of the negatives to avoid. I, I've um, sometimes ministers or church officers ask unhelpful probing questions that are kind of blaming. Well, well, what, why did you go back to him? Um, what were you wearing? Well, what'd you expect when he went to a party and drank too much? Like I've heard the kind of moralistic questions that are come off as victim blaming or actually are and so the job isn't to investigate the job isn't to probe the job is to be a voice of hope and healing of god's disposition toward 
God's person, God's child. And so that's one role. The role is to be an agent of good news, to connect the dots between the grace of God that is secured and exhibited in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the disgrace that they're experiencing. That's rid of my disgrace. The title of her book comes from the story of Tamar in second mm-hmm. Samuel, where she says, who will rid me of my disgrace after her brother assaults her. And I like, I, as soon as I heard, saw that passage, I was like, somehow that word disgrace because disgrace is an umbrella term for um, how, how what people experience and we like to talk as christians about the grace of god um and so i thought this is perfect because we get to we get to connect the dots help them connect the dots because most people most people most christians think that um god the father sent jesus so we could be forgiven of our sins and that's true the cross and resurrection the bullseye is jesus died for your sins but they think that forgiveness of sins is basically the whole thing. The, the woman whose story I told you earlier, when I met with her, I said to her, I'm sorry for the way you were sinned against and the crime committed against you. And she got angry at me. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. What's happening here? Maybe I said it wrong. So let me say it again. I'm really sorry for the sin committed against you and the crime committed against you. And she said, why are you, why are you taking me out? Uh, you're unplugging me from the grace of God. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, Jesus died for my sins. That's how I get the grace of God, right? I said, sure. She said, do I need the grace of God? I said, absolutely. She said, well, I, 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 you're unplugging me because I was telling her she wasn't guilty. She didn't need forgiveness of sins for what happened to her. Someone else did, but not her, because she had one way to plug into the grace of God, forgiveness of sins. And so she was turning what happened to her into something that she was responsible for so she could plug that into the grace of God. That's a brilliant move. And so I told her, I was like, hey, I get that. Jesus did other, what Jesus did in his, his entire works um, apply to you, not just the cross and resurrection. That's the bullseye. That's, that's Ritterboss. That's chapter two of Paul's theology of uh, doctrine of, of salvation and Paul's theology is the cross and resurrection is the heartbeat of Paul's theology. But his perfect life, his ascension, his return, his incarnation, all of these things have something to say. So find the full orbed understanding of the person and work of Christ. Calvin said, when Jesus incarnated, redemption began. And so while we do focus on the cross and resurrection, we don't only talk about the cross and resurrection. So the pastor and church officer's role in counseling is to connect all of the work of Christ to the way that that person has suffered. We can come back to that as we need to. Um, when to refer someone, like I mentioned, my denomination says you can't meet with someone more than three times and keep on going. Like just, just know your role and know where you're limited. And yeah. um, I would say never just hand the person off hmm. because that's that's not your job as a as a minister, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a church officer. You're walking with them through this, whether or not you're the main voice or not. Um, you might, so there's always a little art to this, but, um, I think when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like you're out of your element, um, when you feel like the person's suffering and darkness is beyond where you could be a helpful voice in the sense of course, being there could be helpful, but you know, there, there are certain places of, I've seen some where I just remember thinking in the first meeting, I'm going to need some help. Um, there was a, a person who had very strong um, 
obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, literally certain words would kind of grow in his mind and almost suffocate him. Um, like the word judgment and guilt, referring to those words was just really, it was, it was harmful to him almost. Um, I've seen I've seen how the effects of trauma and trauma memory have, uh, have paralyzed someone sitting right in front of me where I say, hey, tell me whatever you'd like to tell me about this. And they start reliving what happened and just watching that. I'm not a trauma specialist. Uh, so I've seen certain things where I've seen someone in, in the in the very like depths of depression um, who like I, I, it's very clear from moment one, I'm going to need. Uh, they're going to need a different kind of help. I, I'm going to be with them. Like I, I'm still going to be with them and pray through Psalm 88 through uh, their darkness. I'm, I'm still going to talk about um, the return of Christ and the ascension and all that kind of stuff, but we're going to do that with someone else on the team. So I think there's, there's both a professional sense of, Hey, I don't want to create a type of dependence on me. That's inappropriate when I'm not a specialist here. Um, but there's also just the self-awareness of I am, I am in deep, and we need experts on this. And so I think those are helpful guidelines for when to refer to someone in professional care. Hey, all this podcast and this episode is brought to you by our main sponsor at Logos Bible Software. According to a recent survey, 30% of evangelical churchgoers want more in-depth teaching. So if you are among those who want to go deeper into the word, Logos is the Bible study platform for you. Logos also fuses some of the most powerful technology available with biblical resources. You can access all sorts of commentaries, Bibles, up-to-date seminary-level courses, and even audiobooks right on your phone, tablet, or desktop. It has original language resources, which I, Peter, use on a very consistent basis. So it has a great resource on Septuagint, Septuagint resources, the Masoretic Text, which is the Hebrew, and a lot of Greek New Testament work as well. So if you guys are interested in that stuff as well, you guys can head over to logos.com slash guilt grace, because with us, Logos is now more affordable than ever. You can get started at just $49. So head on over, find yourself a package and join us with Logos Bible Software. Hey guys, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Reformation Heritage Books. We've partnered with them and they've partnered with us to try to push a couple of their uh, published books. One of them is the 10 volume series of William Perkins, who a 16th and 17th century reformed writer, wrote commentaries on Galatians, Revelation, uh, wrote The Golden Chain of Salvation, some incredibly influential works in reformed theology. Also, the Family Worship Study Guide, which gives you quick little snippets, about a paragraph each of all 66 books of the Bible, each chapter in those books. So it's really good for family worship. And also they have basically every major publisher uh, in the world. They sell their books at cheaper than Amazon uh, sells them. So if you guys go to heritagebooks.org, drop a line that Guilt, Grace, Gratitude sent you and purchase their books. We'd be grateful and you're supporting a great cause. Yeah, and RHB Books is the largest confessionally reformed publisher in the world, and they publish historical and modern works on a consistent basis. So you can find them on Twitter at RHB underscore books and on Instagram, Reformation Heritage Books. Yep. So go on over there, get these books. There's so much good stuff coming out, and hopefully this is good. Hey, y'all, this is Peter Bell. 
Are you or someone you know looking for Reformed Church in Orange County or the Orange County area? We've got a growing core group, Santa Ana Reform, meeting Sunday afternoons. We'd love to have you join us as we work towards starting official worship services beginning in summer of 2022. If you or someone else you know would like to be part of a Reformed Church from the ground up, hear the gospel preached from all of Scripture every week, and enjoy sweet fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or look in the show notes. I hope to meet you soon. Yeah, maybe a little tidbit that I, I just heard before next next question, which maybe I hadn't heard, but I just kind of imbibed where pastors um, be taught, I mean, me hopefully being a pastor of the church we're planting, um, <clears throat> but I've been told, yeah, hand off when, when you can't, when you can't handle it. Maybe that's just what I imbibed from somebody or just like, I kind of assume, but it's, I never thought about, you know, you're teaming up with these different therapists, you're teaming up with doctors, so you're not leaving them saying, hey, you're beyond me. You're saying, I, I have a specific role in this, that other people have a role in this, where it's not just like, hey, this is not part of me. So it's, it's, that's a, that's a really help. I've never, I've never legitimately thought about it this way. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming other people have not heard about or thought about it this way. So I think this is going to be really helpful for people who are uh, pastors or, or lay people are like, oh, okay, this, this actually makes sense. We're part of a team, not just a specialist where somebody's like siphoned off from something else. And now they have to deal with this. Now they have to deal with this. That's, that's, that's a really helpful way of putting it. When, when the church officer sometimes this kicks in because they, out of their own insecurity or their own arrogance or whatever, there's, there's something animating a minister who would think, oh, well, I can't do this. I might as well hand them off. Mm-hmm. Because if I can't do my role mm-hmm. and if I'm not the lead dog, then I'm going to, so there, that, that happens sometimes, or they don't make a referral because they want to be, so there's certain things animating the minister's soul in that decision. But I do think the picture of being a member on the team um, and telling them I'm not, I'm because I'm not going to be the main lead on some of this care uh, therapeutically. I'm part of the team telling the person mm-hmm. that is, Really, that way they don't feel like they're one when you do that they feel like oh i guess i guess this doesn't count under the umbrella of the grace mm-hmm. of god stuff i need to go get like non-theological help yeah. um or it feels like they're so broken that you know so there's ways there's things that are communicated that are unhelpful for that person by handoffs or withdrawing from the situation or something like that it's been a great joy like and what's been fun I, i've this has happened numerous times new like a lot of the time, the therapist gets permission to talk to me as the minister mm-hmm. and will say, hey, um, you said something about spiritual warfare in one of your meetings that and, and I'm just giving you an example. It's not always about spiritual warfare. Yeah. But I remember one case I said, I said, Satan hates you and wants to destroy you. And he's doing everything he can because he hates you as a child of God and an image of God. And that resonated. And so the therapist said, hey, can you give me some of those Bible verses that I can incorporate? Mm. So I'm coaching the therapist. I'm talking about spiritual warfare mm. and saying, Hey, you don't want to say too much about, you know, Satan demons as if they're all over the place. Cause they don't, they're, they're limited, but they're real. And so I was, I was doing a mini theology class with a therapist. Mm. Uh, and that happens a lot. I'll have, th- I'll have counseling students who after their license will call me up and say, Hey, how does the ascension, you said something in class in my notes, how does the ascension really relate in the here and now? Because I tell them in my class, I'm like, hey, Jesus is currently 
he's ascended. He's on. This is this is why our our eschatology matters. Yeah. Not because it's just true, but think about this. If if our eschatology is that Jesus is currently on his throne, okay, what's he doing? Well, we know for sure he's mediating for us, so we have access to the Father. Hebrews. He's interceding for us because he said he was praying for us, and he's advocating for us that, against condemnation uh, mm. when when Satan's like accusing. So to, to tell people that from a therapist, that the therapist said, what are those three things Jesus is doing right now? I'm giving a theology of the ascension so a therapist can talk to her client about Jesus mediating, praying, and advocating. Like, mm. Therapists aren't trying to uh, uh, usurp the pastor's role. Yeah. They're leaning on us. They're asking us for help and, and, and guidance. That's a really cool relationship to have. And then, so that happens a lot more than it doesn't happen, right? And we have therapists all over the place in Orlando. We had two seminaries doing counseling programs. There's like dozens all over the place. Mm -hmm. And to have a really good relationship with these Christian therapists, man, what a gift. And they've all been trained by you know, people that you know and trust. Like it, It's spectacular. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's awesome. That is cool. Yeah. And I mean, even if it wasn't a, a Christian therapist and you, now you're getting the opportunity to uh, introduce the gospel to somebody that's a doctor or therapist too. So I was just thinking that, but uh, this, let me, let me tell you yeah. a funny story about that because there, cool. there, there is, there, there was a, a therapist who uh, I made a recommendation for a specific thing for child development um, psychology. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the therapist and she, and she told me, she said, Hey, I'm an atheist. Um, mm -hmm. I don't believe anything that uh, you believe. And so I'm, just, I'm saying that not to argue with you, just to be really clear. This is where my question is coming from. Can you talk about the Lord's Prayer to me? Why? She said, well, the, I, I had one of these children talk about how important the Lord's Prayer mm. is to this child. <laughs> A seven-year-old telling her atheist uh, therapist. Yeah about how important the Lord's prayer is. And then the therapist calling me and saying, Hey, I heard you recommended because this person's brilliant and loves children and advocates for them. And I went through the Lord's prayer. So she would have something important to say. And she goes, huh? If that's what Christianity is all about, that gets my attention. Huh? Like mm. a seven-year-old yeah. is the voice of this learned, brilliant, gifted, uh, 65 year old uh secularized atheist woman like that's what god is doing so if it can happen by a seven-year-old it definitely happens yeah when it happens yeah, yeah. Amen. Oh. When you, when you said that, nick i couldn't help but tell that story yeah i love it <laughs> oh thank you for yeah thank you for sharing that uh powerful um i my my little boy is two and a half years old and i recite the lord's prayer with him once or twice a day and he's starting to puts his little hands together and he says it with me at two and a half years old. Yeah. So I uh, love it. Um, that, hey, that, I, know, I know, I know we're talking about abuse, but don't yep. stop doing that. I, yep, my girl's yeah. 11, 13. I have, I have uh, two prayers. I, I said, what are your favorite prayers? One's the general Thanksgiving for morning prayer for the book of common prayer. The other one's a prayer that my daughter found in the back of the prayer book that I didn't even know was there. And so I printed both of those up and I have them in their seats behind me. So on the mm. way to school, mm. I'll be like, hey, what are we praying about? I'll pray. And then I'll just say, hey, okay, you guys pray. 
and they're praying these prayers. They have them memorized now. So it's unbelievably cool to be driving down the street and watching your kids at eight and 10 and nine and 11 and 10 and 12, just kind of having their own thing. So that starts, it starts at two when, Mm. when when dads do that with their kids. So that's what I encourage you to keep on doing that stuff because your son will there. Something happened last week where I asked my daughters and my wife, I was like, Hey guys, I'm nervous. Will you guys pray for me? That's the good stuff. I mean, yeah. so that little boy will be praying for you in a few years. Mm, yeah. That's so cool. That's encouraging. Uh, that, that bridges this perfectly into this last question I have. And I, I actually, uh, I was hoping for a, like a biblical theology answer. And I think I'm more hearing you talk about this. I think I'm probably get one, but not to put you on the spot. <laughs> in, in your experience, what seems to be the common denominator to people seeking uh, counseling as uh, when they're, when they're struggling? Yeah. I love this question. Uh, I've done this for o- over 10 years. I don't think I've been asked this question. That's why I love it so much. So thank you for your kind of, you really dove into the kind of pastoral soul of people. Um I think two of the biggest common denominators for people seeking counseling, two of the issues, and if this doesn't hit the bullseye of what you're thinking, just let me know and I'll recalibrate. I think there are two that work together, shame and distorted identity. Um, I think I think we don't live in a shame culture. We live more in a guilt culture. And I think shame is not something that a lot of Americans in particular know what to do with. Uh, and so I, I see shame as a very powerful force in people's hearts, minds, and thoughts about themselves. And it works in conjunction with distorted self-identity or low self-esteem. Low self-esteem just sounds so weird. Um, Distorted identity of who they are, because shame tells lies about your identity. You're broken, you're damaged goods, um, those kinds of lies. And the lies come from Satan. They come from within. They come from the person who sinned against you, who may have said something or their actions communicated something. So shame is a really powerful uh, force for the enemy and for destruction. Uh, years ago, I wrote a, a really quick article called The Difference Between Guilt and Shame. It's in Modern Reformation uh, magazine because that was something they were realizing they were bumping into. But an uh, identity is the other one where people just feel the lie of I am damaged goods. I do deserve this. Uh, the reason God let this happen to me is because I had an abortion when I was 15. The reason God let this happen to me is because I had premarital sex. So there's like a karma damaged goods mixed together. Yeah. And, uh, and so those are the two, those are the two big ones. When, when people are telling me about their desire and I'm talking about survivors of abuse and trauma. Um, if, if we're expanding it to, counseling in general, pastoral counseling, guilt would be the major one. I do see guilt as a major force, not necessarily for survivors of abuse, but that's the, uh, when people are talking with me, not about uh, survivor of surviving abuse, guilt is the main one. Um, That's why I love my role as a minister uh, to authoritatively pronounce if they're in Christ um, and trust in his works, uh, they're forgiven and they're declared pure, perfect, righteous, and holy like that, that stuff will, that dog will hunt as uh, yeah. people. Yeah. So those, are the, those are the main issues that I see the common denominator. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is, 
this, this is is a hard topic, but this is, I think this is going to be, I hope this is going to be incredibly powerful people who, uh, who listen to this. It may not know some of these things. Uh, it may have wrong ideas, no idea, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, it's, and you, we've already kind of previewed this a little bit, but I'm sure people are thinking too. Um, well, it's great that he's talking about counseling and abuse victims, but, but how does, how does reform doctrine actually kind of make a difference in the counseling office? So like, why, why be reformed in a counselor? Why, why believe this reform theological stuff? Um, and have you, have you, have you seen a reformed approach with reformed distinctives, maybe kind of the negative side play out differently than maybe kind of a general evangelical approach? So first is how does it make a difference? And, and two, maybe specific examples of, of how it might make a difference. Yeah. Let me, and cause I didn't answer what I say about, uh, uh, shame and distorted identity. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The question was, what are the common denominators? Well, the answer to your question is replying back to that. Let me give you an example. When someone comes in with shame, um, well, how does the Bible? The question I have is, how does the Bible talk about shame? Well, the Bible talks about shame in three ways. Um, the language of shame and the images of shame are naked, naked and ashamed, um, filthy defiled looking at the law because you're defiled and outside the camp so you're naked dirty and outside the camp that's how the bible those are the images the three ways the bible talks about shame well how does how did god respond to our nakedness filth and being expelled from the camp specifically is the person and work of jesus christ ultimately and the covenants obviously but fulfilled in christ Jesus was stripped naked so we could be robed in his righteousness. He died a disgusting, filthy death with body fluids and garbage and died like a defiled man so we could be washed clean in the blood of the lamb. He was crucified outside of the city so we could be adopted in. This is where our theology actually is at its best, not at diagnosing the problem, but at responding to it. So when I, when I talk about shame, I tell the, I'm talking about the act of righteousness of Christ, not just as crucifixion, the act of righteousness of Christ, which is actually one of our distinctives, mm -hmm. is he died so our sins would be forgiven. He fulfilled the law so we could be declared righteous in double imputation. The reason I can look at you and say, oh, your sins are forgiven, you are declared, as the Bible says, if you're in Christ, pure, perfect, holy, righteous, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. That's way better than anything you can make up about yourself. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Your self-esteem issue? Well, there's a practice called positive self-affirmation where the, per the person makes up their own words to affirm themselves. I got way better for you on that because of our theology. What has God said about you if you're in Christ is way better adjectives than you could come up on your own. If I came up with my own adjectives, hey, Justin, you're pure, perfect, and righteous. Like I would say you're smart, you're hardworking people like you. Okay, that's what I would come up with myself. I'm not going to come up with pure, perfect, holy, and righteous. That's what God says because of the work of Christ. So that's one thing uh, it, to answer the, the common denominator question that Nick brought up, but bigger picture about the theological distinctives. One, uh, we celebrate God taking the initiative. Survivors don't need to feel a burden of another brick in their backpack of what are you going to do to heal yourself? Some of the worst stuff that's the most cruel that I've read are from uh, people who study trauma and theology and their emphasis they say things like, no one can hurt you unless you let them. 
if you want to start healing, you have to do the work. It's basically radical Pelagian garbage applied to trauma. Hmm. Let me tell you what a, a trauma survivor doesn't need is being told, if you want to heal, you got to do the work. Like another dose of law is not going to fix trauma. And so the fact that we, we emphasize God's initiative and hope, healing, and redeeming, and our response is a response to God's initial response. So we're, we participate in it because we're recipients and we respond, hence the language of guilt, grace, gratitude. Mm-hmm. We do respond after God does what God does. It's that's the same logic of guilt, grace, gratitude is the same logic of God taking the initiative and hope and healing. And then we respond in a certain way. So God taking the initiative is one major distinctive. The, all, all of the theologians who engage trauma, regardless of their actual theological commitments, have said the narrative of scripture is so important because it's a larger narrative that envelops the trauma survivor, the abuse survivor, because it's not my little story that is the major thing, but it's God's narrative and story that's so important. And, and because the centerpiece of our narrative is actually a very traumatic event of a crucifixion, it was an unjust uh, denial of the truth, a mockery of someone who was silent, who was lied about, who was taken advantage of, who was betrayed. Like the crucifixion is really powerful. What Jesus went through is powerful for survivors of abuse to actually see. God gets it. And again, I'm not not violating impassibility by saying that. Yep. I'm, not, yep. I'm, all for it. I'm, I'm on the same page on this. <laughs> and the other one, it's just the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, uh, we just talked about the act of righteousness of Christ. That's huge. We, also, we just talked about the ascension. We just talked about why that's so important. He's returning. He's coming to make all things right and bring justice. I can get off the hamster wheel of revenge. So the ministry of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the very thread of the gospel christus uh, solo christus is that's what people that's what christians need to hear in their pastoral counseling is what has jesus done not just who he is this is jay gresham machin not only who jesus is but what has jesus done that is the good news that i need to hear and so we, we talk about continuously the work of christ god's initiation and the narrative of scripture that is our main script not um, something that we try to make fit into our lives. So those distinctives, um, I, I love talking about them. And, and some, going back to your second part is they're, they're, the distinctives play out differently than a, a general evangelical approach um, because we, we talk about how central scripture in Christ and God's initiation are. Those, those things are noteworthy because if we don't have those, uh, a generally evangelical approach can lean back too quickly on, well, here are some steps for you to do for your hope and healing, mm-hmm. which are great. There are things we can do to participate, but to give the burden to the person is not helpful. Um, we make it, gen- uh, sometimes the general evangelical approach makes it too much about their story, not the grand story of God's redemption. And uh, if we talk about Jesus and the general evangelical approach is frequently, he died so you could have forgiveness. And I'm all for that. Again, that's the bullseye. It's all throughout scripture. But he did do a whole bunch of other things and to, to, to limit the work of Christ to death resurrection when there's incarnation, act of righteousness, ascension and return. Um, he's currently reigning all of that. There's a robustness that is left out sometimes. Um, so 
Mm. I'll stop yeah. there because uh, that's that's a great. I keep on rolling. It's not helping so much. <laughs> real, real quick thing. Uh, so what you're saying is the reformed doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean total depression. And it doesn't mean utter depravity either. Absolutely. Right. Total depravity. This is this is something I have to clear up frequently. Total mm-hmm. depravity means that every dimension of who we are is tainted by sin. Not that we're as bad as we could be. We could be even worse. That's mm-hmm. utter, utter depravity is you're horrible. There's no good. And the biblical story is everything was good. Humans were good, good. Good got distorted. And God is restoring the original good that was there. But it's going to be even better than the original. It's, it's not just a, he's not restoring the garden. It's a garden city. Um, it's not just a few people worshiping him. It's a multitude of people worshiping him. So yes, this total depravity is not utter depravity and is not utter. Did you say utter depression or utter, utter, to, total depression? Total depression. I love that turn of a phrase. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so we've, as we, as we end this, um, we've talked a lot about pastor's roles and um, counselor's roles. And maybe as we end this, uh, maybe if, if some, some help for those who might be listening um, wondering, okay, well, like what, like how do I respond? Like I, I maybe see how pastors and counselors should be responding to some of this stuff, but like, how should I bring it to a pastor? How should I bring it to a counselor? What, like, should I look for professional help? Should I go to my pastor? Like, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to do with, with what I've got. So how, how would you help them figure out like, where do I go? Great question. Again, I think this is situation relative <clears throat> in the sense of uh, that person knowing okay, how am I suffering? Um, so as much as they can kind of know their own internal terrain, spiritually, emotionally, physically, socially, like what's going on with them? Do I trust this person? Has that minister been trustworthy as someone to go to? Or are they dismissive? Do they? Um, but most likely, if uh, you're going to that church, you're going to that church because you do trust them. And that person has been a faithful minister of uh, the word of God. And so what I would, what I've recommended to people, I've, I've gotten this question from people saying, okay, I, you're not my minister. So that's, you know, that'd be nice. I think, how can I talk to my pastor about this? So I've told pastors, ministers, I'm like, Hey, when you talk about the grace of God, don't just talk about it in some of ethereal realm, tell them the grace of God applies to uh, the way you talk to your spouse and your kids. It talks about the way you think about money and sex and food to your addictions, to the way you've been abused. I mean, just make a list of all the ways that people suffer. That way they they kind of have an avenue to kind of come back to you. I mean, say, oh, you you mentioned this because when, when the minister says that the person in the pews hears, oh, maybe this pastor might get it. And so uh, now going back to the person, you know, how, how should you seek counseling? I think... Um, I've seen really whatever form works. It, sometimes an email is easy as, hey, let me lay it out for you. This is where I think I need some care and hope. Um, or after the church, church service, you know, hey, you said this, and I, I really think that engages this dimension of where I'm suffering from some darkness and sadness and destruction. Um, so I think, I think go, depending on how much you trust that church officer, um, in the sense of how trust where they are they with this ability, not I don't mean that in a suspicious way. You know, hey, I, I think I'd really like to talk to you as my pastor about some darkness in my life. Um, can we have one of those meetings? And I think, you know, show them a card or two, see how they respond. Um, ask them their view of, you know, hey, when, 
how does this work? Because I don't know if I just need like pastoral care, if I need counseling, I don't have a gauge on myself. I've actually had a lot of people have taken the initiative and told me, hey, I'm meeting with you because I've been meeting with my therapist. My counselor told me I should meet with my pastor about this too. So I've actually had it go mostly about half the time the other way, which is just encouraging to hear that people have kind of just taken the initiative to say, I don't want darkness to win. Where am I going for it? Um, but I think go to your pastor and say, uh, church officer, describe the darkness. They signed up to be a shepherd because most shepherds signed up to be a shepherd because they want to care as under shepherds. But what I know, a lot of the bad, abusive, self-absorbed, narcissistic shepherds get a lot of the airtime and well, both because they grab the airtime as blowhards but also because a lot of the attention is given to them because of the destruction. And it's also um, shocking and surprising. Most of the, most of the ministers that I get to work with vast majority signed up for it because they feel called to it because they've been recipients of the good news and they want to be a small, a small voice of spreading that to a few more people. And so most of the ministers that people that your listeners, um, you know, know love them and want good for them and like a good parent like when a good parent can't answer the question they figure it out if my daughter is like hey i want help on volleyball I'm like i'm not your guy but i'll get you a coach who can do this and i'll support you and i'll sit in the stands and i'll practice with you like they, <laughs> your pastors most likely love you and they want to be a voice of grace and good news to you and point you to Jesus and fix your eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of, of our faith. Um, so give them a shot, see what they can do. Uh, if they're harmful, get away from them, but see what they offer. And because they want to help. So I would, I would just simply ask, and, and I want to be really clear. It takes a lot of courage to do, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. to ask for help like that. I don't like asking for help at all let alone if someone's thinking they've been wounded or they've done something and they need some help, they, they feel stuck in an addiction, they feel paralyzed by the darkness, the courage it takes for someone to go ask some stranger for the most part, it's not your family member or a close friend, your pastor, like this person to go ask for help takes a ton of courage. And so don't minimize that. That's huge. It does take courage. Pray for courage. Pray that God would give you strength and perseverance to, to do that. And then um, may God be gracious and, and fill that minister with his spirit so he responds or, uh, with, with grace and kindness and, and gentleness and God's disposition um, toward you and that he would be an agent of that person yeah. or, or that message. So. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so um, maybe if, if we can just stand by letting people know where to find you, some of the resources that you have and some resources that they can use to say, hey, I'd like to dig into this more, learn more, figure out where I can go, what I can do, what I can read, whatever it may be. So yeah, anything that you can plug. Sure. Um, most of my stuff is at justinholcomb.com. So Justin, H-O-L-C-O-M-B. Uh, have some articles there. There's a link for books. So some of the books that come to mind on this are Rid of My Disgrace, which is Hope and Healing for Sexual Assault Victims. Is It My Fault? Hope and Healing for Those Suffering Domestic Abuse. Uh, mini book on children and trauma. We have some children's books, uh, one in particular called God Made All of Me, Helping Children Protect Their Bodies. So it's a kid's book for parents and caregivers. 
to read with their children about a doctrine of creation and why their bodies matter. So when evildoers want to harm them, they have a, a line of defense mm-hmm. um, to protect themselves. So the, the, the three, four main ones are rid of my disgrace, is it my fault, children in trauma, and God made all of me. But those are all connected at um, justinholcomb.com. Also look into grace, godly response to abusing Christian environments. Um, they just do good work. And uh, we've been doing good work for uh, a long time. Our reputation is uh, pretty good as an organization. I'm on the board there. I don't work for them, anything like that. It's just a resource that's available. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Dr. Holcomb, thank you. Thank you so much for talking about this topic, uh, reform theology, counseling, and, and all these things where... Um, our, our honest prayers, people listen to this who either maybe struggling with this, know, like you, you know somebody who struggles with this, if, if whether you know it or not. So it's our hope is this is a resource and a helpful starting point, not everything, but a helpful starting point to kind of move here and, and go somewhere else. So, so thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick and Peter, for taking a risk on doing a topic like this to not <laughs> save because people might get frustrated, but I think uh, I think your heart is really clear that you want hope and healing, gospel hope and healing for people mm-hmm. and as much wisdom as possible. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for for turning the attention of, of what you guys are doing on this topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you much. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you want to do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.